Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at Symposium 2, a conference held in Los Angeles at Stephen Wise Temple in November of 2018. It's my great pleasure to welcome uh, to this episode of the College Commons podcast my friend and colleague, Dr. Benjamin Summer. Summer is professor of Bible and ancient Semitic languages at the Jewish Theological Seminary, our sister institution. His acclaimed book, Revelation and Authority, Sinai in Jewish Scripture and Tradition, came out in 2015, and Haaretz has described Summer as a traditionalist and yet an iconoclast. He shatters idols and prejudices in order to nurture Jewish tradition and its applicability today. And Haaretz also characterized Summer's thought as a synthesis of intellectual acuity, clarity, deep knowledge of classical Jewish texts throughout the generations, along with contemporary Christian theology and ancient Near Eastern literature. Dr. Benjamin Summer, if I can call you Ben. By all means. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. So, to warm things up, tell me one thing about the Bible that an atheist needs to know. An atheist needs to know about the Bible that the Bible is not simply a statement of doctrine. It's not simply a statement of the truth. But the Bible is an anthology of a good deal of literature written by people who are searching for the truth and who made extraordinary progress on that journey. But along the way on that journey, they got to a lot of different important places. The Bible is full of debate and discussion and disagreement. There certainly are boundaries to those debates. Uh, It's a book that is monotheistic. It's not atheistic. It's not polytheistic, but what the authors mean by monotheism, what they mean by God, what they think the relationship between God and the world is, and what God is at all, uh, is much, much more variable than they're probably assuming uh, if they haven't picked it up and read it with an open mind. And, and when I say read it with an open mind, I don't mean to say that an atheist reader is going to have a closed mind. But what we see in something often depends on what we're expecting to see. And people who expect the Bible to be, in a sense, their grandfather's Bible, if you know what I mean, or their grandmother's Bible. A dogmatic um, sort of statement of faith, Mm -hmm. uh, a catechism. Exactly. If you're expecting a catechism, you're likely to get a catechism and not notice how different this is from a catechism. So I would just say, don't assume it's the Bible of a fundamentalist Christian. Uh, the biblical Bible may be very, very different from what you're expecting. The Jewish way of studying the Bible deals a lot with discussion and debate. If you read Midrash, you get davar acher, davar acher. You keep on getting different opinions about a certain verse. Or if you read medieval rabbinic commentaries, you get the text of the Bible in the middle of the page and all these different voices by different rabbis around the, the, the text of the Bible um, with lots of different op- opinions. I think, though, to a very great extent, that lots of American Jews make fundamentally Protestant assumptions about the Bible. Um, Protestantism is the dominant religion of the United States, and Protestant assumptions, I think, permeate our culture. 
And so many, many Jews, actually, I think even most Jews, um, most Jews make Protestant assumptions about the nature of Judaism. Uh, my colleagues, back when I taught at Northwestern University, my colleagues who taught Catholicism told me that American Catholic students are making basically Protestant assumptions about Catholicism. My colleagues who teach Islam tell me that Muslims born in this country are increasingly making Protestant assumptions about the nature of Islam, which are just not accurate. Just so, because of the cultural dominance of Protestantism in American culture, not to mention religious culture. It, yeah. I, that is, America was founded by Protestants. Um, Plymouth Rock was found, you know, Plymouth was founded by Protestants and a certain kind of Protestant. And those assumptions are so, so deep in American culture about what religion is. Name, name it for us. Or mm -hmm. we're, uh, give, me a, give me a very, very narrow example of what you mean by a Protestant assumption. Martin Luther and, uh, and John Calvin, the, the, the reformers, uh, pushed back against the Catholic Church has to do with the role of Scripture, the role of the Bible in religion. In Judaism, and Catholicism, in Islam, Scripture is important, but it's important alongside other kinds of tradition. In Judaism, it's, Ju it's rabbinic tradition and also later post-rabbinic traditions. In Islam, um, it's, uh, it's, sun uh, it's sunnah and hadith. In Catholicism, it's the Church Fathers. It's the teaching authority of, of the Church itself. And Scripture, you know, it's got a place, but it's not the only pillar on which the religion rests. And furthermore, scripture is often seen through the lens of the tradition. One of the things that the reformers did, that, that Luther does, that Calvin does, and that Protestants do to this day, is they say that the individual can go back to scripture himself or herself, have an individual relationship with scripture. They don't always have to look through the lens of tradition. Right, individual and unmediated. And unmediated. They don't, and they don't have to look at it through the, the, the eyes of the priest or the rabbi. Uh, they... They can, and real religious authority comes from scripture, not from these other post scriptural writings. Yeah, there, there is, it's actually putting down often the inter, the, the, the all the intermediate ages between mm -hmm. yourself and scripture. Right, there's an as, to as get if back. it's almost an, uh, a veil. It's a veil. You want to get rid of that veil, go back to the real, true Christianity of the New Testament, of the New Testament community. And that's just not how Jews look at scripture. Now, I'm a professor of Bible. You know, I'm I'm all in I'm all in favor of the <laughs> right. rabbinical nothing students. Against having, the Bible, right? yeah, nothing against the Bible. <laughs> I want my rabbinical students to, to study Bible, but I, I often do find myself in the odd position, especially when I'm teaching at synagogues, of trying to remind my fellow Jews that you know the Bible's not that important in Judaism. You know, they've already invited me the checks in the mail. I can I can I can let the cat out of the bag. Um, that in Judaism, there's lots of absolutely core Jewish beliefs and practices that are barely mentioned or not mentioned at all in the Bible. Life after death does not play a big role in the Bible, but it plays a very big role in rabbinic Judaism. Uh, the laws of kashrut that we end up observing, they're not from the Bible, they're from rabbinic, they're from rabbinic right. texts. So they're based they're on the Bible, right? but they're very, very extrapolated. And, ramified, yeah. uh, and when people, let's say, realize that laws of milk and meat are barely there in the Bible at all. They think that somehow that's not a, it's not a real law of kashrut. But no, it's a perfectly real law of kashrut. The laws of kashrut, practically speaking, just don't come from the Bible. They come from the Talmud. And so I think that this tendency of American Jews sometimes to assume that the Bible is more important than it is, I think that we're getting that from our, our Protestant environment. That part I experience entirely. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. 
Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. Much of your scholarship has been dedicated to appreciating the, the daunting complexity of the human understanding of God's physicality or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Near East, in particular, uh, where Israelite religion grew up, um, but also in subsequent generations. So I want to ask you in your, in your study, uh, when you studied the Jewish evolution of, uh, of our understanding of God's, let's not even call it physicality, let's call it presence. I'm not sure what to call it. What did you learn along the way that absolutely shocked you? And where you had to actually realign your own sense of being a Jew, or at least historically being connected with the Jews, were you like, "Whoa, uh, we believed that," or, mm-hmm. or something, something like that, that 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 forced something in you to reckon. So the example that you brought up is is a great example of that, uh, and in, in a few stages. When, like everybody else, when I was a kid, I was taught that the Bible doesn't believe in a physical God. God is invisible because there's nothing to see. And the rabbis, of course, believe you know, in a non-physical God. We sing this in Yigdal. We sing this in Adon Olam. I didn't want to say the song Anim Zmirot at the end of services that the minion that I went to actually did sing because it's so anthropomorphic and blatant in its descriptions of God as an old man with white hair and as a young warrior with black hair wearing a helmet and using his arm to defeat his enemies... And it just seemed like, oh, come on, this isn't Judaism. And then my third year or fourth year of graduate school, I took a seminar with my, uh, with my doctoral advisor, Michael Fishbane. Uh, it was his last year teaching at Brandeis University before he went to the University of Chicago. And uh, it was an extraordinarily, extraordinary class on myth in rabbinic literature and the roots of Jewish mysticism in rabbinic literature and reading various texts with him, I began to see that actually the rabbis do believe in the physicality of God, and there is a huge stream in Jewish thought that does believe in some form of a physical God. This was really a shock to me, and that really changed my view of Judaism. It wasn't only an academic class I was doing as a PhD. It's a class that changed my, my understanding of my own religion as I realized that the physicality of God is very important in parts of the Jewish tradition. So that, and around the same time, a, a professor who was then at JTS, now is at Bar-Ilan University, Ed Greenstein, um, talked about how Anim's Miro, that, that song that I didn't like at the end of services, that if you actually read it closely, it's actually anti-anthropomorphic because it's giving us so many different images mm. precisely so that we realize that none of these is accurate, that none of us can see God, none of us can even 
imagine what God looks it like. It forces the fact that they're metaphors. Because you forces, give, they're giving you mm-hmm. so many metaphors that you can't nail one down. Right. So Professor Fishbane showed me that I had a misimpression of the whole Jewish tradition, that God is much more imaginable and much more physical. And Professor Greenstein showed me that I was reading Animus Miro wrong anyway, that in some ways it's much more sophisticated in its use of those images than I had realized. Mm. Um, and he was so obviously right uh, in his interpretation. Uh, you know, I just wasn't paying enough attention to it um, when it was being read, in part maybe because I just didn't want to pay attention to it because I was kind of put off by it. And instead of accepting its challenge, I was sort of escaping its challenge by ignoring it. So that's an example where, where my studies really changed things. Um, later, I wrote a book that dealt with this topic. And when I wrote that book, The Bodies of God and the World of Ancient Israel, I began slowly to realize that what I was saying about this firot in Kabbalah, and even the emanations of the divine, sometimes called Godhead, the Mm -hmm. very, very core of divinity, and the emanations of descending degrees of divinity outward from a, uh, in concentric circles, they're called sfirot because they're enumerated, um, emanations is what they're called. So, mm-hmm. so in studying these spherot and in studying these spherot and thinking about the ways that actually they pick up on a biblical way of seeing God, um, on an ancient Near Eastern way of understanding what divinity is, I began to realize. Well, on the one hand, I was I was trying to make a connection between Kabbalah and biblical literature. I was trying to argue that in places where Kabbalah seems new and weird and radical, it was actually deeply, deeply traditional that Kabbalah was actually picking up on a biblical way of understanding God. Now, in the course of coming to that realization, or making that argument, I was sort of surprised and not so pleased to realize that everything I was saying about the Sefirot as deeply rooted in ancient biblical Judaism also applied to the Trinity. That if God can have ten Sefirot and yet still be one God then God could have three persons and still be one God. And if this idea of multiplicity within unity in Kabbalah has a biblical basis, and, and, and my argument in the book is, is about that biblical basis, that the biblical authors think that unity can have multiplicity when we're talking about God. If that's the case for the Ten Sfirot, it's also the case for the Trinity. And somewhat, as we say in Hebrew, Baal Korchi, against my own intuitions and and desires, I had to admit that I had researched myself into a place where I had to argue that traditional Jewish objections to the Trinity are not acceptable even from a Jewish point of view. That the way that we Jews have attacked the idea of the Trinity, it's actually not legitimate Jewishly. And we, we need to stop making these claims that the Trinity is polytheistic. The Christians think they're monotheists, but really they're pagans. No, from a Jewish point of view, forget about even inter-religious dialogue. Right, right. By, just our, by our, our own metrics. By our own metrics. By our own metrics, the Trinity is a kosher model. I was worried that the Jews for Jesus would pick this up. Right. Um, but as an academic, as an intellectual, I've got to, you know, I've, I'm committed to truth, to, to emet, to kushta in Aramaic. And I had to, you know, I, I had to write this. So it's in chapter six of my book. And I, I, it really had to change the way I, not only as a scholar, but as a religious Jew, 
how I view Christianity. And actually, like within a few weeks of the book coming out, like within two weeks, I started getting emails from Jews from Jesus. <laughs> and I wasn't really always sure what to do with them because it, I don't believe in the Trinity. I'm not encouraging people to believe in the Trinity. I certainly don't think that there's going to be any possible authenticity, legitimacy uh, to the Jews for Jesus. But I think that the theological model that the Trinity is based on, it's an authentic Jewish model. And within Jewish-Christian dialogue, we have to acknowledge that. Authentically, shall we maybe put a finer point on it? In, in the biblical model, the claims of monotheism are not specious. Correct. In, from the point of view of biblical monotheism, the idea of a triune God, of a God who is three and yet one, that actually is feasible it's, from the point of view of, of some biblical authors. I should emphasize, not all biblical authors. What, I, what right. I discuss in this book is a, a debate among different biblical authors. And the truth is that the main thrust of biblical theology is not happy with that, that theological imagination. But there are biblical writers in the book of Psalms, in Isaiah, and in parts of the Pentateuch, parts of the Torah, especially what we modern Bible scholars call the J and E sections of the Torah, that completely embrace this model. Rabbinic literature also has that model. Is the argument that it's triune or just that there's the capacity for multiplicity? Multiplicity. Within? Not specifically yeah, yeah, triune. Three, yeah, three that's, not, no. Right. None of them yeah, go with yeah, three. It's, 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 the, it's the conceptual premise that... Uh, uh, plurality can exist within unity. Right. It's a, it's plurality within unity. It's not specifically right. three. Right. Which is um, and then in, in in Kabbalah, already a bit in rabbinic literature, that it's actually more ten right. becomes the number in Jewish That's tradition. That's the enumerated part, because there's only ten sefirot, and each one has right. specific characteristics. Which are, mm-hmm. So, right. I, I understand what you're saying. The, the I do find it interesting that, uh, I mean, I, I don't, um, I'm not, capable of arguing biblically, but with respect to the Sefirot and the effectively 13th century uh, codification of the Kabbalah and the Sefirot, um, is there not a... Fun- I mean, first of all, the mythic embodiment of God, I totally get in in, in medieval mysticism. That's patent. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I think of the Sefirot, um it feels more like uh, ripples rather than bodies or, or, or entities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't appear to be uh, apposite mm-hmm. to the question as you've raised it with respect to the po- possibility of plurality within unity. The idea of spherot, I think, is more about different aspects, different maybe metaphysical aspects right. of God. Right. But these aspects in Kabbalah have a certain degree of independence because they interact with each other. Um, yes. And insofar as they're interacting, they are separate from each other, so we get multiplicity, we get plurality, and yet in the end, they're all still part of the same unity. Maybe in the end we can even say that they're just illusions, that God is one. That I think that in the Bible we see both ideas showing up. Certainly we get the idea of an Yeah, the embodiment, yeah, for sure. Um, But we also, I think, get ideas of God sometimes manifesting God's self to human beings in in ways that involve only a user-friendly, approachable Mm -hmm. amount of divinity, not the fullness of of divinity. Yes, that part is definitely also in the Sfirot, absolutely. We get that sometimes in the word Malach Adonai in Mm -hmm. the Bible, 
which is usually translated as angel, but it doesn't always mean angel in the sense that we mean angel. It, it often does. It often means that an otherworldly being who is a messenger of God, but sometimes it means a small-scale manifestation of God. Um, it's God speaking to Moses or speaking to Abraham, but only a little bit of God to make this, this manifestation of divinity more approachable. Mm-hmm. And that manifestation, though, can sometimes act a bit independently of God without undermining God's unity. Right. There's um, some deputizing going on. Well, not, not just deputizing. Deputizing happens when Malach means an angel. I would say there's more something big taking the form of something less overwhelming. Mm. We don't really have a word for it in English. There is a word for this theological concept in Sanskrit, which is avatara. So I guess we do have the word avatar in English, which comes from Sanskrit. In the Hindu sense of an avatar, the malach Adonai is sometimes an avatar of the heavenly God, sometimes an earthly avatar. And that might be localizable in space and time. It might be in a a body. But it doesn't doesn't have to be. It might be somehow more metaphysical or more abstract than that. That's an example of where there is multiplicity, but for the biblical authors, that doesn't. For the biblical authors who accept this idea, that doesn't undermine the the unity. The unity. Now, the author of the book of Deuteronomy would say, no, it does undermine right, the unity, right, right. Um, and that's why the author of Deuteronomy says, Adonai Echad. There is only one Adonai. It, uh, he doesn't just say there's one God. Uh, in Deuteronomy six four, the author of Deuteronomy says there's one Adonai. There aren't these different manifestations of Adonai that other biblical authors are talking about. In some ways, I think that the more one thinks about it, the more one realizes that the mystery of this other trend that leads to Jewish mysticism, the mystery of God that insists that God is entirely other, that God is wholly other, that God is something that might fascinate us but that we'll never understand, uh, that, that preserves the freedom of God to be really surprising and weird, uh, maybe that's the deeper monotheism. Hmm. At, 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 I, I can understand why Maimonides thinks sure. that he's the, he's the real monotheist and why Hermann Cohen thinks that Maimonides is the real monotheist. But there may be a way at a really, really deep and subtle level that actually the mystics are the, the deeper monotheists. It, it doesn't look like that on the surface, but they preserve God's complete transcendence and freedom while allowing God the freedom also to be in the world, even as God is transcendent. Their God is very much both and, which on the surface makes their God look more pagan, but deep down, no, that tells us that actually their God is more radically free and transcendent, and hence more, more truly godly, yeah. more godly. But that part of that, what, what comes out of that is the realization, again, that Catholicism, Christianity, um, Maybe to a Jew or a Muslim, they don't look so, so monotheistic, but they're a lot more monotheistic than we realize. And even Hinduism, there's yeah, an increasing recognition of this among Jewish thinkers, even some very, very orthodox Jewish thinkers. Um, there's increasing recognition that many forms of Hinduism really are monotheistic. Yeah. And, and, and some call themselves as much, too. Uh, yeah. And so there's, there's a... Yes. Well, uh, we could talk much longer, no doubt, but I want to thank you for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Great. This has been great. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu. 
where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.